right, well, good morning, City View Church. Good to see you this morning. Uh, so thankful for this family worship service. Boy, that, I have been blessed by what has taken place so far. Uh, kids, I'm so glad that you're out here, okay? I'm so glad that you're out here for the service today because I need your help in getting my sermon started today, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to say the first line of a song, and then what I need you to do is tell me the next line, okay? I think it's a song that at least some of you should be familiar with, and so I'm going to say the first line, and when I say the first line, if you know the next line, just, just shout it out, okay? Uh, are you ready? All right, well, here we go. Here's the first line. This little light of mine. All right, you know it. All right, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All right, that song is based on Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, one of those verses of Scripture that we heard so beautifully read this morning. Now, letting our light shine, letting our light shine, that's an expression that means living out our faith in Christ. And now, kids and adults, I, I don't know if you've discovered this, but it takes courage to live for Christ today. It takes courage to live for Christ in our world today because we live in a world where Christians face a lot of opposition. In some parts of the world, in, in the Middle East and in parts of Asia, it's actually illegal to be a Christian and it's illegal to have a Bible. And so, of course, it takes courage to live for Christ in, in those places. But what about here in our own country? Okay, thankfully, we are free to live for Christ here in the United States, but that doesn't mean that we are free from opposition. Okay, Christians seem to be facing increased amounts of opposition here in the United States. And if you don't believe me, just take a, take a look at some of these recent news headlines that I've collected and put on the screen for you. Okay, maybe you've heard about the Atlanta fire chief who was fired from his job because he expressed his Christian beliefs in a book that he wrote. Uh, the former fire chief's name was Kelvin Cochran, and he leads a men's Bible study at his church. And in his own time, with his own resources, uh, he wrote a book that was intended to help men live out their faith in Christ. And, and somebody on the Atlanta City Council got a hold of the book, and they didn't agree with it, and so they used their position to get him fired. And then there was a Lance Corporal in the Marines named Manifa Sterling, and she was discharged from the Marines after being convicted in a court-martial. And what was her crime? Well, she had a Bible verse on display in her cubicle. It was Isaiah 54, 17, which says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. That got her kicked out of the Marines. And then in North Carolina, there was a middle school student. Uh, he was suspended for three days because he told two of his classmates about Jesus. These two classmates, they knew the kid was a Christian, and they were kind of challenging him and picking on him a little bit because of his faith. And all the kid did was respond and say, God loves you and Jesus died for you. Well, the kids complained to the principal, and then uh, that Christian kid was suspended for harassment. And the list of headlines, it goes on and on. Actors and actresses, they've been fired for being Christians. There was a star soccer player that was left off the U.S. women's national team this year because of her Christian beliefs. There was a teacher in New Jersey that was suspended because he happened to tell a kid who was last in line that one day the last shall be first. And when the kid asked where that came from, and he said in the Bible... Uh, the kid started asking about the Bible and said he didn't have one. So the teacher said, well, if you want one, you can have mine. Well, the next day that teacher was fired. Even in Maryland, uh, last year, the church that I came from, we had a teacher who was fired from his job because he told a depressed teenager who was confused about his gender that God loved him and didn't make a mistake when God created him. It takes courage to live for Christ today. It takes courage to live for Christ today because... We live in a world where Christians face opposition. 
And living for Christ could have some repercussions as some of these folks in the headlines found out. Now this opposition that Christians face, it, it's nothing new. Okay, it's nothing new, nor should it be surprising. Jesus faced opposition when he was here on this earth. And he told his followers to expect the same. In John 15, 20, Jesus warned his followers saying, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And then in John 16, 33, Jesus said to his followers, in this world, you will have tribulation. In other words, you will face opposition. And then a few decades later, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're a Christian, you should not be surprised when you face opposition as you live out your faith in Jesus Christ. It just comes with the territory when you follow Christ. Now those who oppose Christianity, they're trying to accomplish something. They're trying to make us afraid to live out our faith in Christ. They're trying to make us afraid to let our light shine in this dark and evil and sinful world. Well, friends, we can't give in to those fears. Okay, Jesus, our Lord, he told us to let our light shine before others. And if we do that, if we let our light shine, well, we're going to invite some opposition into our life. Like I said, it comes with the territory, and that's why it takes courage to live for Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, uh, they let their light shine. And when they let their light shine, they attract some opposition. But they press on and continue to live for Christ because they were committed to living courageously for him. So we're going to look at how Peter and John live courageously for Christ today. And we're going to talk about how we must live courageously for Christ in our culture today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it out, and you can open it up to Acts chapter 4. Okay, we're going to be looking at the first 22 verses in Acts chapter 4 today. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 4, uh, let me just remind you of what has just taken place in Acts chapter 3 to set the stage for what we're about to read. So if you remember, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, uh, two apostles of Jesus, they're going up to the temple in Jerusalem on a particular day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This was the, the time of the day when the Jewish people would gather for prayer and for a sacrifice. And Peter and John, they're going up to the temple. Maybe they're going there to pray. Uh, maybe they're going there to witness for Jesus. After all, there was going to be a large crowd of people gathering at this time. Okay, well, as they're making their way to the temple, Peter and John notice a paralyzed man who was laying by one of the gates begging for money. And Peter looks at him and he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And Peter grabbed the man by the hand and he lifted him up and immediately the man started walking and leaping and praising God. Well, this attracted a crowd, right? This man was laying by the gate every single day and everybody knew that he had been paralyzed from the time that he was born. And now they see him walking and leaping and praising God. And they wanted to know what just happened. So they gather around Peter, they gather around John, they gather around this man. And Peter tells the people that it really wasn't by his power that he healed the man. It was by Jesus' power. And Peter went on to explain to the crowd that, that Jesus has the power to save us from our sins and that Jesus fulfills God's promises to save us from our sins. That's what we talked about last week. Now, many of the people who were there, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what they saw and they responded favorably they repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They committed to following him. But there was a handful of people there who didn't like what they see. They didn't like what they were hearing. And so they confront Peter and John and they oppose them. 
Okay, so we're going to turn to the scriptures now, and we're going to pick up the story at this point. So like I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And if you don't mind, just in honor of God's holy and inspired word, if you don't mind, would you please stand as I read? Here's what God's word says to us. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, as they, and that would be Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council and they conferred with one another, they said, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, it is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk about how that we can live courageously for him, that you would fill us with your spirit and help us to let our shine, light shine in this dark and sinful world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, as we look at this passage of scripture today, from Acts chapter 4. The main point that I want to make today is this. Because Jesus told his followers to let their light shine in a, in a world that opposes him, we must commit to living courageously for Christ. Okay, Because Jesus told his followers to let their light shine in a world that opposes him, we must commit to living courageously for Christ. And as we go back through this passage of scripture, as we look at how Peter and John lived courageously for Christ, what I want to do for you this morning is I want to point out three ways that we must live courageously for Christ, three ways that we must let our light shine in this dark and sinful world. And it doesn't matter if you're six years old or 60 years old, or if you're nine years old or 90 years old. Each and every one of us must let our light shine in these three particular ways. Okay, the first one is this, to let our light shine in this dark and sinful world, 
we must courageously teach the truth about Christ. We must courageously teach the truth about Christ. That's what Peter and John were doing in chapter 4 when, when chapter 4 opens. Okay, verse 1 says, as they were speaking to the people. And I want you to, I want you to notice that Luke says they. That's plural. Okay, that means both Peter and John were speaking. Now, Peter's the one whose speech was recorded at the end of chapter 3, but, but John wasn't a silent sidekick. Okay, John was speaking to the people too. And what were Peter and John speaking to the people about? Well, verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 tells us that Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Okay, look at it carefully. Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John, they weren't really talking so much about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What they were talking about is how in Jesus, all of us will be resurrected from the dead. Okay, the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, all of us are going to be resurrected from the dead. And those who have put their faith in him and have committed to living for him, they'll be resurrected from the dead to live with Christ forever in God's kingdom. But those who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be resurrected from the dead to face God's judgment. This is what Peter and John were telling the people. Now verse 2 tells us that some who heard them speaking of these things were greatly annoyed. Okay, it was the priest, it was the captain of the temple, and it was the Sadducees who were greatly annoyed. Now the priests, they were at the temple to conduct the evening sacrifice. So they were probably greatly annoyed because here come Peter and John and, and they heal this man and cause a big commotion and distract the people from the prayers and the sacrifice that they were there to observe. The captain of the temple, this would have been the high priest's right-hand man. And his main job was to keep order and peace on the temple grounds. And so, of course, he's greatly annoyed because here... Peter and John have come and stirred everybody up. And then the Sadducees, okay? This was a group of Jewish people that had extensive political power. And they were annoyed probably for both political and theological reasons, okay? Politically, the Sadducees, they were on the sides of the Romans, okay? They wanted to keep the Romans happy. So when Peter and John are there telling people about how God is going to restore the kingdom to Israel... Uh, the Sadducees were probably afraid that the Romans were going to be upset with all of this talk. And so they were, they were annoyed for political reasons. But the, the, the Sadducees, uh, they were probably also annoyed with Peter and John for theological reasons. Because they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in any kind of life after death. And so, and so the Sadducees were greatly annoyed, not only for the political reasons, but for the theological reasons. Now this group, this group of priests and, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they had the authority to arrest Peter and John. And that's what they did. Okay, in verse 3, we're told that they arrested Peter and John. And since it was already evening, the Jewish high court, a group known as the Sanhedrin, they had already dismissed and gone home for the day. So Peter and John are put in jail, and they're going to have to spend the night in jail so that they could then face the Sanhedrin the following morning. Now, even though the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, even though they're greatly annoyed with Peter and John, and even though they're opposing Peter and John, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Many who heard what they said believed, and the number of Christians came to 5,000. So if you're kind of tracing the growth of the early church, remember it was 120 believers at the beginning of chapter 2, 
And then 3,000 were added at the end of chapter 2. And so now we're up to 5,000. Okay, your translation might say 5,000 men, but it's a word that really means both men and women. So what's going on here in verses 1 to 4? What do we see if we wanted to summarize verses 1 through 4? Okay, I think here's how we can summarize verses 1 to 4. We see Peter and John courageously teaching the truth about Christ in the presence of those who needed to hear it. And what we see is that God blessed their courageous efforts and many people came to faith in Christ that day. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a great need for us to courageously teach the truth about Christ in our culture today. There's a great need, a really great need for us to courageously teach the truth about Christ in our culture today because a majority of people in this country do not believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. A literal majority does not believe what the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ. Okay, I've got data to back that up. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, they team up and they take the theological temperature of this country. And so what they do is they survey thousands of people, several thousand, and they ask them if they agree or disagree with various theological statements. And they publish the results in a report called The State of Theology. And so I, the, the most recent report came out last year in 2022, and I was reading this report last week, and I was reminded just how great the need is for us to courageously teach the truth about Christ today. Okay, one of the questions in the survey said this, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Agree or disagree? Okay, did you hear it? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Agree or disagree? Now, I hope you disagree. Okay, because the Bible is clear that Jesus is fully God. Okay, Jesus said that he and the Father are one. Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins, which is something only God could do. Jesus received worship from his followers, and he didn't stop them. And worship is something that only God is worthy of. And so there are hundreds of, of verses in the New Testament, hundreds of places that we could look to see that Jesus is fully divine, fully God. Now guess what percentage of the people agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher but not God? It's 53%. Okay, a literal majority. 53% of Americans agree that Jesus was a great teacher but not God. 11% said they weren't sure. They might say, well, that, okay, that's the general population, so, you know, that result doesn't really surprise me. Okay, I'm with you on that. The result didn't really surprise me all that much. But here's what did surprise me. Among those who identify as Christians, about 50% agreed that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. Among Christians, 50%, about half of Christians agree that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. Friends, Jesus Christ was a great teacher, no doubt about it. But Jesus Christ was more than a great teacher. Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, but he, he pointed out that if you're going to say that Jesus was a great teacher, then, then you have to agree that he was also fully God because that's what Jesus claimed about himself, and a great teacher wouldn't lie. And C.S. Lewis, he, he boiled it down. He said, you got three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he was a liar, in which case he wouldn't be a great teacher, or he was a lunatic who thought he was God when he really wasn't, or he's the Lord, as in fully God. Now it's important for us to courageously teach the truth about Jesus because, listen, a Jesus who is not fully God, he can't save us from our sin. 
In fact, if Jesus was not fully God and fully man, he could not save us from our sin. To be the perfect, sinless sacrifice that pays the infinite price for our sin, Jesus had to be fully God. And then to fully represent us on the cross as our representative to the Father, Jesus had to be fully man. And that's what he is. That's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, the general population, they won't oppose you if you talk about Jesus being fully man. It's only when you start teaching the truth that Jesus is fully God that people will get greatly annoyed. But church, we cannot back down and we cannot compromise on what the Bible makes clear. We must courageously teach the truth about Jesus Christ. People's salvation and their eternities depend upon it. So that's the first way that we have to let our light shine in this dark and sinful world. That's the first way that we have to be courageous for Christ. Now the second way is this. We must courageously explain the exclusivity of Christ. Okay, we must courageously explain the exclusivity of Christ. Okay, and we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. Okay, but first notice in verse 5. Okay, in verse 5, Luke tells us that the rulers and the elders and the scribes they gathered together in Jerusalem the next day. So that group, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they were known as the Sanhedrin. They were essentially the supreme court of Israel. Okay, consisted of 71 members, and they had jurisdiction over all the temple grounds and temple area. And verse 6 tells us that this, this group met with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and with John and Alexander and other members of the high priest's family. Caiaphas was actually the high priest at the time. Annas, his father-in-law, was the previous high priest. Okay? And even though he wasn't really the high priest anymore, he still carried the title and had a lot of influence. Okay, basically what you've got here is all the bigwigs that have gathered together in Jerusalem. And verse 7 tells us that Peter and John were set right in the middle of them. Okay? They probably sat in a semicircle, kind of like we're arranged here, and they put Peter and John right in the middle of that Semicircle. And, and the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John, by what power, by what name did you do this? This, okay, what they're asking about, this probably refers to the healing of the man, but also probably refers to the teaching that they were giving the people who had gathered around. Now, the question is more of a statement than a request for information. Basically, the Sanhedrin is saying to Peter and John with the question, they're saying, hey, Peter and John, you know that we have the power around here. And if we didn't give you permission to teach these things, then who did? Nobody has the authority. Nobody has the authority to give you the permission to teach these people about Jesus like you're doing. If we didn't give that permission to you, then nobody did. You have no business teaching these things up here at the temple. That's what the Sanhedrin is saying to Peter and John. They're trying to intimidate Peter and John. They're trying to intimidate Peter and John into hiding their light. Okay, but look at how Peter and John respond in verses 8 through 12. Okay, first I want you to note that in verse 8 it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we don't want to gloss over that detail because what is about to follow is, is Peter's response and, and he's being filled with courage by the Holy Spirit to give this response. Okay, the Spirit's not only giving him courage, but also giving him the words to say. And so filled with the Spirit, Peter responds to the Sanhedrin by saying, if you're asking me about a good thing that was done to this crippled man, 
I'll tell you, it was by the name of Jesus Christ that he was healed. In other words, it was by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ that this man was healed. If you remember in, in the Bible, a person's name is really representative of their, of their being and personality. So when Peter said it was by the name of Jesus that the man was healed, he's saying that it was by the power and the authority that, that Jesus has that the man was healed. And then he goes on to say, Peter goes on to say, he says, all right, if, since we're talking about Jesus, and since I have the floor, uh, let me just say something else about Jesus. This Jesus, the one who gave me the power and the authority to heal this man, which shows that he's the Messiah, this Jesus, you crucified him, you rejected him. And Peter then quotes from the Old Testament that they would have known so well to, to prove his point. He quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Sanhedrin, they are the builders. They were the leaders of the Jewish nation. And they rejected the most important stone upon which that nation was to be built. They rejected Jesus. You see, when you were building a, a building back in Bible days... The cornerstone was the first stone that was laid, and it was the most important stone. The integrity of the entire structure depended upon the cornerstone because all the other stones that were used in the foundation were lined up with the cornerstone. Only a fool would reject the cornerstone and try to build a building without it. So in verse 11, when Peter quotes from the psalm, he's basically telling the Sanhedrin that they're fools for rejecting Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, he explains why they're fools. Okay, verse 12, one of the most important verses, not only in this passage, but also in the entire book of Acts, really in the entire Bible. Look at verse 12. Peter says, you're fools for rejecting Jesus Christ because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says, you're fools for rejecting Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins. So what Peter's doing here, he's explaining the exclusivity of Christ. He's telling the Sanhedrin that Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven. There's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, where did Peter get this idea? Did he, did he just make this idea up that Jesus is the only way? No, he didn't make it up. Peter got the idea from Jesus himself. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said he is the way, not a way. If you want to get people fired up in our culture today, just explain to them that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Explain to them the exclusivity of Christ. You may have heard of John MacArthur. Uh, he was interviewed by Table Talk magazine not too long ago, and, and he was asked in the interview, why is Jesus Christ such a controversial figure? Why is Jesus Christ such a controversial figure? Here's what John MacArthur said. He said, Jesus Christ is a controversial figure because he said that I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through me. John MacArthur said, that's a radically narrow, exclusive statement. Christians can talk about Jesus all they want as long as they will allow for some other religion to be acceptable to God. 
But as soon as you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that anyone who does not put their trust in him will perish forever, as soon as you say that, the offense that people take is just massive. It's the exclusivity of Jesus' claims that is so offensive. John MacArthur reminds us that explaining the exclusivity of Christ takes courage because it invites opposition. Now, another Christian named R.C. Sproul, he found this out the hard way. Okay, maybe you've heard him on the radio back when he was alive. Uh, well, he told the story one time of how he was sitting in his college English class. And he was a fairly new Christian, and he was full of zeal. So all his classmates and all his professors, they knew that he was a follower of Christ. And one day, he was sitting in his college English class, and, and this class was taught by a professor who was, who was known to be very hostile towards Christianity. And on this particular day, the professor singled out R.C. Sproul and put him on the spot. She said, Mr. Sproul, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? R.C. said he wanted to disappear because he felt the pressure of the confrontation. He said on one hand, he wanted to say, yes, Jesus Christ is the only way. But he knew that if he said that, that the wrath of his teacher, the wrath of his professor was going to come down on his head. But he also knew, on the other hand, that if he said no, he would be committing treason to Jesus Christ. He said it was a no-win situation. But he said yes. He said, yes, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And sure enough, the professor exploded. Here's what, here's what R.C. Sproul said the professor said. He said, Mr. Sproul, that is the most bigoted, narrow-minded, arrogant statement that I have ever heard. How dare you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Narcy said, well, not my idea. It is. Friends, listen. You cannot say that Jesus is just of one, one of many ways to get to God. Because Jesus' very own words prevent that. Jesus either, is either the way or he is no way. There's no other option there. Now, a lot of people in our culture, they're confused about this. They're very confused about this. Going back to that State of Theology report, 67% of people agreed with the statement that said, God accepts the worship of all religions. 67%. That's two out of every three people agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. Another 11% said they're not sure. Now, again, that doesn't surprise me. But here's what does surprise me. Among the ones who identified as Christians... About 70%, 70% of the people agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions. Friends, I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He could not have made that any more clear. Now this doctrine that Jesus is the only way, it might invite a lot of opposition, but we must courageously explain the exclusivity of Christ. Peter and John courageously explained it to the Sanhedrin. R.C. Sproul courageously explained it to his college professor. And we must courageously explain it as well. We must, because if we don't, people are going to spend their whole lives sincerely following a religion that they think is leading them to God when, in fact, it is leading them towards an eternity apart from him. 
doesn't matter how sincere somebody is, doesn't matter how good of a person somebody is, doesn't matter what religion they follow, doesn't matter what kind of church they attend, if they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, if they have not committed to following him, they will not get to heaven when they die. It's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. It makes a lot of people angry and upset. But if we're going to let our light shine, as Jesus said we should, we must courageously explain the exclusivity of Christ. That's the second way we must let our light shine in this dark and sinful world. And then third, last but not least, we must let our light shine in this dark and sinful world. We must courageously explain or courageously acknowledge the authority of Christ. Okay, to let our light shine in this dark and sinful world, we must courageously acknowledge the authority of Christ. In verse 13, Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin was astonished when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They couldn't believe the courage and the confidence that these uneducated men, these common men, were displaying in the face of their opposition. Now, the Sanhedrin had an idea of what made Peter and John so courageous. In the second part of verse 13, Luke says that the Sanhedrin recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John, they, they spent three years with Jesus before he was crucified. Okay, now I was thinking about this as I prepared the message this week. Did spending those three years with Jesus make Peter and John courageous? I don't think so. I don't think it made them courageous. Because, and I say that because at the end of those three years when Jesus was on trial, Peter denied him three times. Peter, Peter didn't act courageously. When Jesus was on trial, he acted like a coward and he hid his light. So if it wasn't the three years that Peter and John spent with Jesus before he was crucified that made them so courageous, then what was it? I think it was the 40 days they spent with Jesus after he was resurrected. See, Peter and John knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a reality. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They had personal interactions with Jesus after he rose from the dead. Knowing that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, that's what gave Peter and John the courage to live for Jesus, even in the face of opposition. The resurrection gave Peter and John courage because the resurrection assured them that everything that Jesus had said was true. And the resurrection assured them that Jesus would always be with them. The resurrection assured them that Jesus would overcome any opposition that they faced. And the resurrection assured them that their sins were forgiven and that their, their future in heaven was secure no matter what happened to them. Because of the resurrection, Peter and John had no reason to fear. They could go out and let their light shine and courageously live for Christ because they knew they had nothing to lose. Now in verses 15 through 17, the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with Peter and John. They can't deny that the man was healed because he's standing right there in front of them. And so in a sense, they go, they go back and they deliberate among themselves and, and they say, you know, we, we can't deny the power and authority of Jesus. I mean, the, the man's healed. He's standing right here in front of us. But we really don't want this Christianity thing to, to spread any further. So, so I guess here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to go out and tell these guys to just keep their mouth shut. And so that's what they do in verse 18. They tell Peter and John, you cannot speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. But look at how Peter and John respond to the gag order in verses 19 and 20. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Basically, Peter and John say, God is our highest authority. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he's commanded us to be his witnesses. So Sanhedrin, we're going to listen to him, not you. Peter and John courageously acknowledged the authority of Christ. And the reason they courageously acknowledged the, the authority of Christ is they feared God more than they feared man. Peter and John feared offending God more than they feared offending the Sanhedrin. John Knox was a Scottish minister in the 1500s, and he was one of the leaders, one of the key leaders of the Scottish Reformation, founder of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And he faced a lot of opposition because he courageously acknowledged the authority of Christ. He was taken prisoner by French forces. He was kicked out of his country for, for several years. But he kept on courageously living for Christ. And he kept on courageously acknowledging the authority of Christ. And do you know why he did that? The author of one article that I read said this, quote, John Knox feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. He feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Do you fear God like that? Do you fear God so much that you never fear the face of any man? Peter and John feared God more than they feared the Sanhedrin. And that's why they courageously acknowledged the authority of Christ. Verse 21 says that the Sanhedrin further threatened them. The Sanhedrin told Peter and John that there would be consequences if they continued to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. And the language that's used there tells us that these threats were kind of like ongoing threats. And Peter and John said, oh well. Let there be consequences. We're not going to keep quiet. We're going to keep on speaking of what we have seen and heard. Jesus Christ is our authority and we must obey him. Even if there are consequences for that. In chapter 5, in a couple weeks, we'll see that they weren't just speaking empty words. They talked the talk, but then they also walked the walk. They get right back out there and start teaching people in the name of Jesus. Friends, there's, there's people in this dark and sinful world that want us to hide our lights. There's people in this dark and sinful world that want us to stay quiet about Jesus. But no matter how much they threaten us, no matter how much they oppose us, we cannot stay silent. Jesus has commanded us to let our light shine, to be his witnesses. And if we're going to call Jesus Christ our Lord, we must obey him. We must courageously live for him, even in the face of the opposition. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. His resurrection assures us that he's going to be with us. And his resurrection assures us that he can overcome any opposition we face. And his resurrection assures us that our sins are forgiven and our future is secure. With those assurances, we can live courageously for Christ. We can courageously teach the truth about Christ. We can courageously explain the exclusivity of Christ. And we can courageously acknowledge the authority of Christ. So will you commit to living like that? Will you commit to living courageously for Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you this morning for your Holy Spirit who has filled us. And the Holy Spirit who gives us courage to live for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that you have raised him from the dead. 
and that he's alive today. And I thank you, Lord, for the assurances that we have because Jesus Christ is alive. I thank you first and foremost that we can be assured that our sins have been forgiven and that our future in your kingdom is secure. I thank you, Lord God, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that proves to us that he is who he says he is, that he's the Son of God, the Messiah. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is alive today and that he can always be with us and that he has the power and the authority to help us as we let our light shine for him. We live in a dark and sinful world, Lord. And as we try to live for Jesus, we're bound to face some opposition. Some of us may even have to face some consequences for that. But Lord, it's worth it because Jesus Christ is our highest authority and our obedience to him matters more than anything else. So I pray, God, that you would fill us, fill us with your spirit, fill us with boldness, fill us with courage so that when we leave this place, that we would let our light shine so that others may see our good deeds and give glory to you in heaven. Father, we are just grateful this morning. We are grateful that you have called us out of the darkness and into the light. Help us to let our light shine in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray it in his name.